In the beginning, God planted a garden on the slopes of his great mountain palace. That garden was full of beauty and full of life. Nothing unclean ever entered it or anything that was detestable or false. All of its inhabitants were in perfect and utter harmony. There was no death or bloodshed to be heard of anywhere. And over that garden kingdom, God placed his royal prince who was to rule the world in his stead, to take dominion over the beasts of the land, to work it and to keep it from any defiling influence. But into that garden, the prince allowed a most sinister advisor. You are the great king, the advisor fawned. You should think of for yourself instead of depending on some far-off ruler. And in that day, the whole kingdom was turned upside down, and the prince and his bride worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. And what had seemed to them the moment, uh, in that moment to be the path to upward glory became the first step on their descent to hell. And the garden disappeared. The The children of the prince turned on one another and shed blood. And nature itself, which never knew bloodshed, now turned red in tooth and in claw. In the middle of the story, God planted another garden on a very fruitful hill. He brought a choice vine all the way from Egypt and cleared that garden of huge imposing stones and planted his royal son, in that hallowed ground that he made for them to find their promised rest. Rule with wisdom and understanding, God commanded his new prince. Shepherd the flock. Take dominion over the land and guard it from the wild beasts. Set your roots down deep in me and the desert will blossom like a rose. But the son was too much like his father, and the new vine in the land was just an offshoot of the first one. And rejecting the God who ruled over them, they turned to worship the beasts all around them and their images. And like beasts, they began to devour one another. And once again, the garden of God disappeared. For the great and mighty king of kings wielded in his hand a rod, a razor to shave his people bald, an axe with which to fell that once beautiful garden, leaving nothing more in the end than a smoldering stump. And his flock became a prey for all the wild beasts that roamed the land, like Young lions, they roared, they growled and seized their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue, Isaiah says. And the garden is laid waste. That, my friends, is the story of humanity. And that is the story of the people of Israel. It's the story of paradise, what? Paradise lost, exactly. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Amen? Amen. And in the midst of Isaiah's predictions about the judgment of God upon the people of Israel for their sin and the devastations and the desolation that he would bring upon Israel and upon Judah, in the midst of all of that, he gives them a glimpse of how the story ends. He gives them a glimpse on how the garden grows of how the beastly nature of humanity is transformed by grace. It begins small, 
Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot, just a little shoot, from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." In 586 B.C., God would send the armies of Babylon, the great Babylonian empire, to cut down the people of Judah, just as he had done with the Assyrians of the people of Israel. The house of David would be cut off from the land, and the Eden that Israel was meant to be would be cut down in their sin and under the judgment of God. But do you remember, back in the very end of chapter 6, we got from Isaiah a little hint of hope. Maybe maybe put that in in your Bible, Isaiah 6, verse 13, right next to this text, right next to 11, verse 1, and then turn back to, look at the very end of Isaiah 6.13, the very last line there offers this tantalizing prospect after the Lord says that only a smoldering stump of the people would remain, He says that the holy seed is its stump. And and what happens with a seed? It germinates and it, it sprouts and it springs forth. In other words, even though the Lord is going to bring all of this judgment upon this people, there is going to be left within this people the seed of something new, the seed of something great. Now, where does that come? How, what, where does that go? Uh, Now, if you look back again at our text here in chapter 11, we get a glimpse of this seed springing to life, this small shoot that begins to just grow its way out of this burned-out stump, and that little shoot will grow into a branch, and that branch will become the trunk of a great fruitful tree that will bring glory to God and fill a glorious new garden. That branch would be a new king for his people that would lead God's people into true prosperity and into their promised land of rest that they had been longing for all these years. That is our, the joyful prospect of our text uh, for this week and, Lord willing, the next. Verses 1 to 5, let me just show you kind of where this text goes. Um, verses 1 to 5 in the text, uh, Isaiah just sees the branch or the great king that will come. And then in verses 6 through 16, down to the end of the chapter, he sees the the, the garden that will spring from the branch or the kingdom that will be established by that king. And we'll look just at the very first part of that section today. And then he ends um, this whole section. Really, you have to go on into chapter 12. And chapter 12, the first few verses, is just a song of praise for the great and mighty work of deliverance that God will do for His people. A new song to be sung, you might say. And so we'll look forward to those things in the, 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 the sermon here and the week to come, Lord willing. Let's take a look, though, first of all, lift our eyes to see the branch 
that Isaiah sees in his vision. And we notice, first of all, in verse 1, the identity of the branch. That branch begins as just a shoot that springs up. And notice what the text says, something that might surprise us. This little shoot springs up from the stump of what? Now, does that surprise you? Well, it surprised me. I mean, I've read it, of course, before, but I would think that it would say he would spring up from the shoot of, from the trunk of, yeah, David, right? After all, it was David who received the promise, the covenant, that not one of his descendants, that he would not lack a man to sit upon the throne. But here we have that this is the, the uh, shoot from Jesse's trunk. Why is that? And I think the answer is that this shoot, this king, is not simply foreseen to be a descendant of David. This shoot is none other than David himself, as it were. That is, someone who would come as the true, ultimate David, the one who was really the the inheritor of those promises that were made to David and his line. Uh, this is this is the great David to come. Uh, earlier, I had us. I read to us um, Ezekiel thirty-four. And did you notice what the Lord said? The Lord said something about David there too. He said, "Someday." I will, in that great day, again, speaking of the Lord coming and shepherding His people, and and interestingly, the Lord says, I will shepherd the people myself, because the context is the so-called shepherds of Israel had been just abusing the flock, eating the sheep, taking the wool, and not feeding the sheep, not loving them, lording it over the flock. And in that context, the Lord says, I will come and shepherd my sheep. But then he says, and I will raise up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. Right? Now, that should teach us something because, of course, Ezekiel is writing many, many years after David is in the grave. His bones are all that's left of him at this point, right? So what is Ezekiel doing? Ezekiel like Isaiah, is prophesying something about the one to whom David points. You see, there was a self-conscious awareness among the prophets, and um, even in David himself, that much of what was written about him was actually about someone else in an ultimate sense a David-like figure who would give, in fact, full weight to the words that only could describe David, at least in kind of a superficial way. And all of that brings up this really important point for us when we're talking about interpreting the Bible, reading the Bible, and that is this, that typology, as we call it, is not a sort of reading back onto a text what some later writers sort of imagined and wished that that text said. And so they sort of impose their meaning onto that text. No, the, the, the for, the, 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 these statements like this were intentional foreshadowing from the very beginning. Although certainly it was not always the meaning or the significance of it was not always apparent to those who read. So here is the shoot, this new David, as it were, that springs forth from the trunk of Jesse, and that shoot grows into a branch by the end of verse 1. The messianic branch, of course, is a very frequent Old Testament theme. We already saw it back in chapter 4, if you want to go back and listen to that that the Lord had seen that uh, the, the people of Israel had, were like a garden that grew no fruit. Um, 
But in chapter 4, he promises a branch will bear fruit and be glorious. That same theme is taken up in Jeremiah and Zechariah especially. And it's probably also why Matthew makes this really brain-scratching, head-scratching statement that uh, Jesus was prophesied to be a Nazarene because the word for branch is actually the word Nazar. And so he fulfills in that sense what many of the prophets pointed to with this kind of imagery. But unlike the vineyard of Israel that was unfruitful, see the parable back in chapter 5, this branch would bear fruit. He, that is, this branch, this king, this, this great person would manifest evidence of faith and trust in God. And he would do it through, in and through, those who were united to him in his kingdom, or those who were united to him. Um, to, just to carry on this illustration, as a branch is united to, or as a branch is united to its roots, or or to the tree itself. Um, Jesus used, of course, this imagery in John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. Did you hear that? That is, that's the heart of the gospel right there. Whoever abides in me and I in him, the same bears much fruit. And of course, other passages of Scripture like Romans 11 pick up on this image of Arboreal grafting. You know what grafting is? Um, the, the scriptures use this imagery to, to speak about how Israel was broken off and the Gentiles united to Christ. Grafting is a set of techniques for incorporating the bud of one kind of tree into another kind of tree and into its, into its branch or into the stem of another tree. And of course, there are several different techniques. I actually Got to learn a little bit about grafting this week, watching YouTube videos for what that's worth. But um, there are several different techniques. But what's common is that you cut, you make a cut in the host tree and you insert the scion, the little young bud, into that tree in which it is to be grafted. And if you've ever seen a tree where a cut has been made or something has been tightly restricted around that tree. Maybe you've seen like a rope or a chain that's been wrapped around a tree, and as the tree grows over the years, it literally envelops that, that chain or that rope so that it, it, it's, it's embedded within the tree. And the hope is, of course, that this, this uh, graft, this scion, will become embedded into the tree, not just as, as a kind of piece sticking on there, but into the very life of the tree and... That, of course, is what the goal is and what often happens as the tree grows. It, it, the life of that tree is, is borne out through that branch and it continues to, to uh, flourish. And this is the image that the Bible uses of you and I. We are, by nature, fruitless people, right? We don't bear, by nature, any evidence at all of being united to a most righteous God. And... We're bad, we're sinful by nature. Jesus said it this way, how can a bad tree bring forth what? Good fruit. So it's not just that we haven't done what we're supposed to do, it's that we're, we're corrupt in our very nature. We're a bad tree. But Christ came into the world, became a human, obeyed God perfectly, and bore fruit to the glory of God, fruit of true communion with God, but he went to that cross, and on that cross, what happened? He was cut open for you and for me, so that by the pure mercy of God, by faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I could be grafted into the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we are in him and he in us. We in him, so that we stand before God as a part of his body, a member of his body. And if he is well-pleasing, if the tree is well-pleasing, then so are all of the branches and he in us. 
so that His life is flowing in us and through us, His Spirit producing the fruit of His own character in our lives. And that will be a progressive fruitfulness. The Bible says that the great husbandman of the, of the vineyard, the great caretaker, the great uh, arboreal master reaches down and he prunes that tree, he cuts away, he grows that thing so that every branch produces more fruit and much fruit, right? This is the way that the Lord pictures the Christian and what it is to be a Christian. And I just have to ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ by a faith union and the power of the Holy Spirit? If so, then His fruit, my friend, is counted as your own. Amen? What a thing! And if so, I want to ask, is there evidence that He is in you? Is He really and truly experientially producing fruit in your life. Evidence of communion with Him who is righteous. Is that a growing thing in your life? If not, my friend, you better consider sincerely whether you really are the Lord's. This is the picture that's given to us here in the beginning. And then verses 2 to 5, we have, we have the, not only the identity of the branch, but the character of this branch king. Verse 2, we see that he's characterized by a full and settled outpouring of the Spirit upon him. Like the kings of Israel of old, he received the outpouring of the Spirit. But in this case, the Spirit comes to rest and settle upon him, right? The Spirit of the Lord shall... What's the word? Are you with me in verse 2? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And of course, John the Baptist testified to this. John chapter 1, verse 32, he says, I saw the Spirit of God descending from heaven like a dove, and it, and the Spirit of God remained on him. It rested on him. And I myself did not know him. I did not know him to be the Messiah before that. But he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit of God coming and resting, descending and and remaining on him, he it is who is going to be so full of the Holy Spirit that he will baptize others with the Spirit. The Spirit will flow upon him and through him onto all of his people, like the life of the roots that flows up through the branch, the trunk out to all of the branches. That's what John saw. The Spirit would come and rest upon him. In verse 2, it goes on to speak of his character. He will be empowered by the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You notice something in common about a lot of those words. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, all have to do with our what? Our minds. Here was a mind that was utterly possessed by the Spirit of God. Can you imagine that? Oh, I want that. I just wish that my mind were fully and completely possessed by the Spirit of holiness. Here was one who would be just that. He would be possessed by a spirit of might. And of course, that spirit worked signs and wonders, which our Lord did in the power of the Spirit, and it would be the spirit, he would be the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That is, it would come upon this great person, this new David, a heart of faith and trust in God. His delight, in fact, verse 3 says, will be in the fear of God. And he will do what Adam and Israel failed to do, verse 3 and following. He will exercise dominion. He will exercise dominion in absolutely perfect righteousness. 
where Adam failed to have dominion over the serpent and Israel failed to have dominion over the Canaanites, says here that he will rule. He shall not, verse 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see. In other words, his dominion is not going to be according to just what somebody happens to see. You know, you always wish, and, and anytime you hear about someone, for example, that was imprisoned for a number of years, and lo and behold, now DNA comes out and it proves that he was, in fact, innocently put in prison. And you look back at the, at the original conviction, and what it happened was there was an eyewitness, and that eyewitness happened to be mistaken. And even in the best system of justice on this earth, there are going to be times when... People just aren't going to know. They're not going to see it right. right. So what is this one? He judges not by what the eyes see, nor, according, nor will he decide disputes by what his ears hear. He doesn't have to rely upon hearsay. But verse 4, but with, verse four, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. He shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. All of his judgments are perfect and true. And he, verse 4, shall strike the earth with the rod of his, what? Of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In other words, here is a king with such power in his decree, in his word, that the decree itself will be, will have a creative or destructive force. This is no ordinary king. There is great power in his word. And in all this, he is absolutely, perfectly just. Verse 5, righteousness is the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What a, what a king, what a leader, this great branch. You know, they say that everything rises or falls on leadership, right? You ever heard that? And certainly... Israel experienced, Judah experienced a lot of rises and falls, a lot of times depending on who was in leadership. They had bad kings and they were led into idolatry and into the judgment of God. And then they had good kings and there was a revival and there was the destruction of the idols and the land was blessed. But, you know, think about the good kings, the best kings that Israel, that Judah ever had. King David, for all of his goodness, a man after God's own heart yet fell into the sins of the flesh and even into a kind of murder. And Solomon, for all of his wisdom, the wisest of all men, yet took to himself multiple wives that led his heart away from the true and living God, right? But can you imagine now the joy and the prosperity of a people that is ruled by a king like this? Can you imagine what it would be like, how joyful you would be to be in a country with that kind of leadership? Proverbs says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. That's very true. And there is great joy wherever Jesus Christ rules. You can see it. You can literally see it. You can go into the homes where Christ rules and see joy. You literally can see it. You can see peace. You can see gentleness. You can see truth. I've said to more than one person, I just wish I could pluck that person that lost person out of their circumstance and make them come live in the homes of one of these godly families for just a little while to see the joy of what it is to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. This is why you feel such love and peace in our churches because there Christ rules. And this is why even countries where the gospel has been predominant 
have much greater stability than so many other parts of the world. And yet, of course, in this world, we long to see any home or any church or any nation that is fully and completely submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And that's why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Well, the prophet Isaiah does more than imagine what it is to be ruled over by such a king. He foresees it. And that's a, that's a, that's a, the world of difference, isn't it? Am I right? He does more than imagine what this kingdom may be like. He foresees it. And in verse 6 and following, he moves now from the branch to the garden or from the king to his kingdom. And that kingdom that such a king establishes is found for us in verses 6 and following. And we see in verses 6 to 9 the nature of that kingdom. And this is really all we'll see today. The nature of that kingdom Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the scope of that kingdom, verses 12 and following. But what is the nature of the Messiah's kingdom? What is it like? Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. (laughs) What a statement. A wolf dwelling with the lamb. You've you've all heard the, the stories, right? Doesn't usually end well. (laughs) <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood, am I right? Right. So uh, these kinds of stories, they don't end well with the uh, wolf and some creature unable to defend itself with tooth and claw. The wolf will dwell. And the word dwell here literally means to welcome into your home as a guest. To welcome into your land as a sojourner. It's often translated. With all, of course, of the famous expectations of Eastern hospitality. Now, can you imagine a wolf saying to a lamb, come on in, make yourself at home, I will take care of you, without any ulterior motives. (laughs) The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and and the lion and the fatted calf Together, I mean, the little suckling goat, the tender young calf, is so confident of safety that it's willing to lie down with what used to be its mortal enemy. And these are all so gentle, it says, that a little child will be able to lead them. And in verse 7, I think, is the best part of all, because verse 7 demonstrates that the very nature of these beasts is transformed. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall, what? Shall graze. And their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. You ever heard of a vegan lion? (laughs) The point is that the citizens of the Messiah's kingdom, the denizens of his kingdom, have been utterly transformed in their very nature. And that is a power beyond that of any earthly king. For how can the leopard change its spots, right? Where's the cleaned up pig who doesn't just go right back to the mud because, well, it's still a, yeah, still a pig. We're talking about a transformational power that is exercised by this king over his kingdom. And verse 8, verse 8, wow, it just gets better. The curse, the curse itself given in Genesis 3 is reversed, is removed. Because verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. In other words, the age-old animosity between the serpent and the man pronounced in Genesis chapter 3 is finally broken. And then verse 9, you have more 
Edenic language, verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my, in all my, now it's a garden, but it's on a mountain, right? Does that sound familiar from a few weeks back? Back in chapter 2, the mountain of the Lord, Eden on a mountain, and now in Eden there is nothing that hurts or destroys in any way, so it will be so in this kingdom that is envisioned. And Isaiah foresees actually kind of what must be the expansion of Eden. For in the end of verse 9 he says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The entire land of Israel, holy to the Lord. Every bit of it. The entire earth, if you will, holy to the Lord. Filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Everyone knows the Lord there. And that mountain where those people dwell, under that great branch king, all knowing the Lord, transform natures, that mountain grows until apparently it fills the whole earth like the waters cover the sea. Which reminds us of the vision of Daniel, right? Or in Daniel. Now, what do we make of all of this? Uh, The wolf graciously hosting the lamb, the lion becoming a grazer, the child playing with the snake, etc. How do we understand this? What does this text mean? See what time I have, because I have an excursus. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try to do it quickly. About interpreting the Scripture. Our interpretation for, of this passage, and many passages that we come to, our interpretation of, of challenging texts especially is governed by our theological system. Right? That is by our interpretive framework for understanding God's Word. And I will say, on the one hand, that's inevitable. Because nobody comes to a text of Scripture without some kind of pre-understanding. No one in the world is a blank mental slate. We believe something. We may be very ignorant about what we think it means, but we have some, something in our brain, uh, whether it's just what makes sense at first reading or what we were taught, or what our tradition holds, or whatever. So coming to a text like this with a theological pre-understanding is inevitable on the one hand, and on the other hand, I think it's good. It's good. It is what theologians have called the analogy of faith, or the analogy of the faith, which just simply means that We believe that all of Scripture is in agreement and it will not contradict itself. Amen? Right? So so all of Scripture is a kind of system that that it is in agreement with itself. The analogy of faith is that the faith or the body of Christian doctrine which the Scriptures proclaim as a whole will not be contradicted in any way by any particular passage. That's the analogy of faith. The the theology of the Scripture as a whole will not be contradicted by any particular passage. This is an extension of what theologians call the analogy of Scripture, which is that the clear parts of the Bible shed light on the more obscure parts. The analogy of faith, though, says that we interpret each part that we come to in light of the whole. That is, in light of the, our, our theological system, or the whole body of doctrine as God has revealed it to us. So, now here's the, here's the million dollar question. So, how do we discover the whole? Right? And I would argue that that our discovery of that is gleaned by induction. Familiar with that? If you're losing me now, we'll come back to the text here in a minute, but it's, it's, it's important. You know, we're all thinking, how do I read the Bible? How do I understand the Bible? Induction, induction is when we reason from the specific 
specific instances to, to the general. And if we get enough specific instances, we begin to see a general pattern emerging. There's a lot of science is done this way, right? It's inductive. We look at specific instances, and from that we deduce a kind of general pattern about the world in which we live. We do that in all sorts of ways. So we all come to any text of Scripture like this one with a presumed system, with some sort of theological sort of pre-understanding of what the whole Bible says that we bring to the table. And um, as we read specific texts, let me. This is this is really really important. I think for all of us growing in our theological understanding, this is the way it works. We we come to the any particular text with a system in mind, and as we come to it, we um, if we see the pattern that we've come to understand, if we see that pattern repeated in more and more specific instances in the Bible that we drill down into, that we study, we see it reinforced over and over again, then our confidence in our interpretive system should be what? Should be strengthened, right? And if we come across specific instances that challenge our framework, our theological understanding, then what do we do? We should tuck it away. That's what I always say. Tuck it away. Mentally tuck it away. And keep studying. Keep reading. Keep thinking. Keep digging in. And if we do that enough, and if we find enough texts that challenge our understanding of the whole, then eventually we must allow the Word of God to tweak our pre-understanding. So in that way, the whole always affects how we read a particular text, but every specific text that we begin to understand more deeply should have a shaping effect on our understanding of the whole. And so that way, rather than being a vicious circle, it actually becomes a kind of spiral of growth where why our thinking becomes more and more in line with God's own thinking as he has revealed it in Scripture. All right, now that is, that's the end of the excursus. All of that to say that one of the powerful patterns like that that emerges from the Scripture is the principle of the already and the not yet, which I've talked about many times. That is, in terms of the fulfillment of prophecy as it is related to the coming of Christ. The prophecies about the coming of Christ are fulfilled already, and yet they are not yet consummated. And I'm not going to attempt to prove this general principle in the little bit of time that we have left, but I think it permeates most of the New Testament. The New Testament, in fact, is at its heart eschatological. The coming of Christ 2,000 years ago was the dawning of the end, the last days. But I do want to briefly point to indications in the Scripture that apply specifically, I think, to this particular prophecy. And the last couple minutes to do that. Now, in a very real sense, then, I believe that this passage is already being fulfilled. Hosea chapter 1, here's here's just a little bit of thinking behind that. Hosea's chapter 1. Remember that Hosea, he was a prophet like Isaiah, and his family actually was a lot like Isaiah's family, that they were a sort of picture prophecy. uh, Hosea's children, like Isaiah's, were given sign names. He had a daughter called, get this, all you girls whose parents named you a weird name, how would you like this name? No Mercy. Come here, No Mercy. Right? Because this was a testimony that God would judge Israel. And he had a son called... Not my people. Not my son. Get over here. (laughs) Not my people. And the Israelites, of course, were proving to be no different from the Gentiles. And so not his true people after all. But he gave them hope. And here it is in Hosea 1 verse 10. He says, Yet, in spite of this, 
The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or, out or numbered. A huge, vast, great number, which stands in marked contrast to the idea of a remnant. Right? He says, yet they will be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said of them, children of the living God. And we'll come back to verse 11 next week. But how are we to interpret that passage? Well, here's another biblical principle of interpretation. The Bible interprets itself. And you look to, in particular, what's extremely helpful is the New Testament writer's interpretation of Old Testament text. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes this very text in, he, in um, Hosea 1, and he gives God's divine interpretation of it. And he says that it applies to the salvation of, get this, the Gentiles, those who were not my people in you know the most obvious of senses, as well as to the Jews who became believers. And that he saw as happening in his own day. With the coming of Christ, this wall of separation, as it were, between the Jew and Gentile was being broken down. Christ, when he was lifted up, was drawing all men from all nations unto himself. The Spirit was poured out now, being poured out upon the Gentiles as well as upon the Jews. They were amazed at this. This was a sign of the, of the new covenant. Fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So that is Paul's interpretation of the, of the context of Hosea. Now, let's go on in Hosea and see what Hosea says, and then come back to this text. So that, this, is where, this is where my thinking, you know, this is all the background as to why I'm saying what I'm saying about this text. Hosea chapter 2, if Paul is right, and of course he is, um, right, then this has implications for the rest of Hosea's prophecy, namely Hosea 2.18, where God says this, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And no, so here's, here's a covenant that has ramifications even among the animal life. And what will be the result of this covenant? It will bring a situation where there's no more hurt or destruction and I will make you lie down in safety. This, I think, is really parallel, awfully parallel to what Isaiah is saying in the same text. In other words, all of that to say this, friends, is not this being fulfilled now even in Christ's first coming? He came to establish a kingdom, right? He is the king over a kingdom. He's, we're not waiting for his kingdom. His kingdom is established. We're going to look this afternoon at that. He is the king of peace. And in his kingdom, there is peace. People who once would have been absolute enemies are now sitting down in the same congregation together. I mean, Jew and Gentile right in the same pew, as it were. Right? Master and his own slave, perhaps, attending the same service. God's grace is such that it is transforming the beastly natures of these people. He does change the leopard's spots. The former pigs now love the pearls of the gospel. That's what's going on here. The young calf is lying down right next to the lion that could have torn it to pieces. This is Christ's kingdom the peace that it brings. Most of you know the name Corey Ten Boom. She was arrested, of course, for hiding Jews during the period of the Nazis, the Holocaust. She survived the horrors of a concentration camp. Her sister died a slow and agonizing death in the camp at Ravensbrook, but she survived. And years after the war, she was uh, engaged to speak at uh, a gathering, and she spoke about God's grace and his forgiveness and his 
the way he can transform people. And um, Eric Metaxas records, uh, at the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrook, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. It came back with a rush, she wrote. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic little pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, and the shame of walking naked past this man. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. Man came up to her and he mentioned that he had been a guard at Ravensbrook, which she had mentioned in her talk, but that since that time he had been transformed by God's grace. He had given his heart and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he believed that God in His grace forgave him of all of his sins. And he said, I know that God has forgiven me for all of the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And he held out his hand to her. Talk about the lion and the lamb. He held out his hand and he said, Will you forgive me? And she said it was the most difficult thing she had ever had to do. And she just had to sort of will her hand to move and pray for grace. And she writes, as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood over my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, she says, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I had then. That is the transforming, uniting power that Isaiah foresaw would flow from this king on whom the Spirit dwelt in fullness, this branch through whom life would flow, flow into Corrie Tending, flow even into the life and the heart of, the, of this guard. Yeah, I have no doubt that we are seeing the prophecy being lived out in front of us, even today. And yet, in the consummate sense, I think that this text is not yet brought to its final conclusion. Already, the curse is lifted, amen? Isn't it? Christ bore the curse for us. He's begun already to make all things new. Jew and Gentile united together. And while the curse of sin and death has lost its sting for all of us who are the Lord's, yet we still experience death and we still put our loved ones in the ground and we still cover them up with dirt and nothing happens to their bodies. They decay. Right? What are we doing? We're waiting, right? We're waiting. We're waiting for what? Well, we're waiting for the kingdom to come into its own, to reach its fullness, to come into its final consummate state. And that, my friend, is going to involve not just humanity, but the entirety of creation. Romans chapter 8 says it this way, that we are waiting for our inheritance. I thought we, we already had the inheritance. We do. It is ours by faith, spiritually in the heavenly places. We're already united with Christ. We're raised again. We're, not, we're dead and buried and raised already. And yet we're still burying each other. We're waiting 
for our inheritance, that is the adoption, or what Paul says is the redemption of our what? Of our bodies. That's the big not yet. We're waiting. And he says now, hope, we're waiting in hope, and hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that, that right there is exactly why I think this text is here. To give hope to the people of Israel who were about to go through all of these horrendous things that Isaiah is prophesying, that give, to give hope to the remnant, to give hope to true believers, to wait with endurance for the fulfillment of these promises. And in verse 18 of that same chapter, Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the created order itself, that is the earth, the plants, the animals, have been waiting, waiting with us for the curse to be utterly lifted. Remember, back in Genesis chapter 3, when God gave the curse, it was the ground and the plant life and the serpent who were all cursed along with the man. Right? And so Paul writes, verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The fate of cre the created order is tied into the fate of the sons of God. When their glory is revealed, so the glory of creation will shine forth. The trees of the field will clap their hands, as it were, right? All creation will be made new. For the creation, it was subjected, he says, to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Here's where he distinguishes between humanity that is God's people, and the rest of the created order. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Even we who have already come into God's kingdom are waiting for its fullness. As believers, we await the full implications of the day when the curse is reversed that affects not only our souls, but even our bodies. You know that God is going to raise your body? You're going to live in a body? God didn't make us to be disembodied spirits. That nakedness is uh, a stage in which we're going to be long to be clothed further with glory, glorious bodies. We're waiting for the full implications, not only for us, but for all of creation, for the earth and the plant, and even, yes, even, yes, the lion and the lamb, even the animal life. What Isaiah foresaw is a glorious future when he will wipe away every tear and from their eye and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There we will enter into the eternal age, the eternal kingdom, the consummate kingdom and worship and serve the Lord without any remnants of the curse. Can you imagine living and working and cultivating this world with no more thorns and no more fear and no more death and no more sin and no more anything that has to do with the curse. This is the glory that awaits all of us who are grafted into the branch, into that trunk who is Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you truly in Christ? And if you are, if you are, and this text is designed to encourage you, I believe, just as it was for the believers within Judah, to continue in hope. Come what may, suffer what we may be called to, to persevere in hope. For hope that is seen is not hope, but those who believe, they wait for God's promises with patience, with endurance. May the Lord give us such endurance. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word of encouragement today. We ask that it would have its good and proper effect in the hearts of your people. We ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, would you stand with me? And I think uh, in light of the time that we will skip the last song, much as I want to sing it, Come quickly, Lord, make all things new, redeem the church, your bride. With longing eyes we look for you, for home is at your side. We'll just end this morning with that vision in front of us. This is a true vision. We're already seeing it. And so we have hope to wait for its fullness in every respect. And we'll end with a blessing, and I'm gonna, we're going to do it as a responsive uh, reading here from Psalm 72. Let's bless the Lord together. I'll begin the reading, and then you join on all of those bold blue words. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be the glorious name forever. May the whole earth rejoice in His glory. Amen.